You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. Ajit, what skill are you mastering now? Right now, my focus and attention is to lean into whatever my intuition says. It's not necessarily a skill per se, but it is uh, more of an ability, I would say, to not filter what's happening for me or what is coming or what is intending to come through me. So that, that's the skill, that's the ability, that's the, for lack of a better word, confidence that I'm hoping to have for more in context of work. Mm-hmm. In context of life, my most recent studies has been around relationships. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hoping to get better at is to be a better friend, to be a better partner to Nita, to be a better child to my parents, to be a better father to my kids. So I'm trying to learn how to be better in relationships. Mm-hmm. And that's really what my focus is in con- skill building beyond work mm-hmm. is all around that. I want to go <clears throat> to what you were saying about the intuition, because for everyone, their intuition speaks to them differently, right? Like when my intuition speaks to me, it's actually not in the form of words. It's in the form of a feeling. Like I have a guttural reaction when something is the right you know, decision for me, how does your intuition feel or speak to you? Like, how will you know that, you know, okay, I'm, I'm on the right path. I'm listening to my intuition. To me, as of now, what it really looks like is it would be an idea that would just come to me going, we should do this. And that would be very clear of exactly what we should do. It's not backed by any data. Most of the time, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I'm talking business-wise. It's like it's the dumbest business decision a person can make. But at the same point in time, to me, it feels like this is what we should do. It's almost like I'm doing it in one in, in togetherness or oneness with something greater than me. But at the same point in time, it's very visceral. It's like we should do this. And then I would, what I'm now leaning into more and more is to saying, okay, we should do this. And then I would just lean into it and see what happens. So as we sit down, I'm coming back from an event that we just hosted for two and a half days for our group. There's a group coaching program around called Accelerate. And in that, individuals come to the program that want to accelerate their life and their business. And we work on all dimensions of life. We don't limit ourselves to just business. We also lean into a lot of life, a lot of different work that we do. And as I was creating the event, it was just coming to me on what the event should have. Now, most of the time, what does a mastermind or a group coaching event look like? It looks like a hotel room where the person comes in. Mm-hmm. There's a flip chart, maybe a LCD screen or whatever, the, the screen to, to project a projector. And then you have a bunch of people sitting there and you're just talking through the entire day. It's the most boring experience yeah. that a person could have. It's like it's torturous sometimes. It's very <laughs> overwhelming. It's a lot of information. Great. Good, good on all of that. But it's not something that people go, wow, I am in awe of what I just experienced. It's more like, the person that is talking is really smart, good for them. I got something out of it, right? Nothing bad, but nothing that really like I would be excited to do. Or or I would be excited to do maybe at some stage of my career. But right now I was like, hmm, I don't know if that's not what I'm being called to do. It is 
what I'm being called to do, and this is, I shared it with the group pretty much on day one, is I'm creating this experience as an expression of me. It's not designed to be presenting me as a smart intellectual person. It's not designed for anything else, but to have you experience if I was an event, how would that feel like, right? And how I would live my life on a day-to-day basis. What are the experiences that I'm careful of or experiences and things that I care about in the scope of a day? How would my presence be? How would anything be? So while it may seem like a little bit crazy, if you because it's like, oh, your expression, really, Ajit, how narcissistic are you? But that was not the idea. The idea was we connect with human beings. And if we can provide a real human experience to someone, you really can connect with the person. Right. While intellectually I can stimulate anyone, mm-hmm. what if my beingness is present at an event? Can I really do that? Can it be expressed that way? So the entire event was designed not to be more profitable mm-hmm. for the company, which most likely everybody would want it to be. It was designed for them to find some kind of grounding, some kind of relationship with the event itself not with only the people around them, but with the event itself. And it was just an intuitive hunch. It was, I had no idea what will come out of it. At the end of the event, it's one of the most beautiful, beautiful sites I see. It was about 70 people in the room. And without any instigation, without any me saying you should do this or anything like that, people were hugging and crying. They had the most deep, meaningful friendships. Not with me. They were experiences of that with me as well, which I'm very grateful for. But between themselves... They were so tightly bonded that I am so much more confident them going out in the world and doing something because they now have a dear friend that is going through a similar experience. And in my reality of the world, I believe that's really important to have a dear friend going through the experience with us. Doesn't have to support us. It's just walking with us that path because the path's going to be difficult. Anything that is purposeful is a little bit more difficult than just, you know, reacting to life as it happens. If you're creating life, it is a little bit more difficult. And all we can do is hope for somebody that actually comes along. So that's how intuition's outcome looks like to me now. I'm not doing it because it makes sense when I am being guided to do it, but it eventually makes sense. I absolutely love that picture that you painted. And it all makes sense, right? It's like you decided to create the event, not just like for, you know, it had nothing to do with the profitability. You wanted people to experience things. And and I also kind of chuckled when you said like, oh, how narcissistic of me. And I actually don't think it's narcissistic of you at all. I actually think it's like you wanting to bring you into this event. And by you bringing you into this event and you creating an event based on like how would Ajit show up, what you actually did was set other people in the room free for them to like relax into their beingness. And then when everyone's relaxed into their beingness, then they can connect with each other. Because it's not all about quarterly goals, this goals, like it's not so heady, like, and uh, all from the neck up, it really is more heart centered. So I think that's beautiful that you did that. Yeah. So, so that's what being in intuition or being more guided yeah. looks like to me right now. It's it's almost a, a guided, not necessarily a statement, but almost like a calling where I just know this is what mm-hmm. I'm being guided to do or say or be. And then just having the confidence of saying it may not make any rational sense or it doesn't, you know, like my rational mind would try to talk me out of it, mm-hmm. to not 
talk myself out of it. Isn't that interesting how the minute we're guided and called into something, our mind finds a way to talk ourselves out of it rather than like, why don't we talk ourselves into things more? You know what I mean? Yeah, so, it's so I, interesting. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I really want everyone hearing this. It's like when you're operating from your intuition, it's not going to be like this, oh, you should, like it's, it's going to feel, right? You're going to feel something and it might feel crazy and it might actually be like, why am I even doing this? And you might talk to someone almost wanting them to talk you out of it. But thank God for you, you have a partner like Nita who's, who helps support you, you know, talk yourself into doing this. And now look, yeah. that's beautiful. So I think like the, I really love those, the, the use of words like being guided and being called because it's not about anything external. It's just, it's coming from within and you cannot ignore it. Like you having yeah. this idea for this retreat. And I know you've been in the coaching industry for seven years I know I started uh, back in 2011 and it's changed a lot. How do you feel about where the coaching industry is right now? And the reason why I want to say this is because you're one of the very few people that I know, Ajit, who's like, you know, even you saying like, oh yeah, there's no upsell, there's no downsell. I'm probably going to end up, you know, spending more than I'm going to be charging. Like that's very unconventional. We don't hear a lot of coaches talking like that. So how do you feel about where the coaching industry is right now? So the coaching industry right now is at a good place because... There's a lot of people that wanted to sell to coaches or teach coaching that were not interested in the coaching at all. They were interested in the money, have already ejected themselves from the industry because they they had the run where they had to, you know, like they could make X amount of money, they made it. And then the industry kind of caught up to them or they kind of were like crypto was the next big thing. So they chased crypto and so they're out of it, which is great. Good for the industry because there's that season that always happens. Everybody follows a trend and then people who were doing it for the trend eventually realize, well, they've taken whatever they could take take from the trend and they drop off. And now anybody that has left is genuinely interested. They're interested in something that is much beyond money. They're interested because there's a reason for them to start it. There's a reason for them to, to chase that ambition, to do that work. And I feel we, I am among those people, you're mm-hmm. among those people, mm-hmm. where we're doing it because there's an intention behind it. It's not because... We could make more money doing a job at this point mm-hmm. in our lives, but we would do it because we're intentional about what we want to create. So that's a good thing in a way, right? Because that that, that crazy people that were coming in the middle are not going to create unnecessary noise. At the same point in time, more and more, if you really look at it, consciousness is moving towards, or people are moving towards the consciousness of saying, we want help mm-hmm. and we need help, Right. Therapy is becoming more and more mainstream. There are more companies helping people find therapists. Coaching is becoming more and more mainstream. It's not a weird word to say anymore. People, companies know coaching for sure. People are starting to know coaching as well, what more. And even if you look at the trends of books that have come out, any any recent, right? Even if a therapist is writing a book, it's not necessarily a therapy book. It's actually mostly coaching, right? If you really look at the back of the book of what is the instruction that you're giving people to, there's a lot more coaching than anything that is to do with therapy. And that's because coaching is that effective, And 95% of the world needs coaching. Maybe 5% of the world needs to really go to therapy, right? Because therapy is, if you, for the matter, therapy is not even the most effective thing to do. It's just the most accepted thing to do. Right. Right. So coaching is way more effective. Uh, It may not be acceptable in the context of legal acceptance or on certain categories, but I know friends, and this has just been friends coaching friends, where people have gone on, uh, they were on medication for depression or anxiety and so on and so forth, and just coaching them through that was a lot more effective and they were off medication in a matter of a couple of months. So you can do a lot more with coaching than you can do with therapy. Just the legal system hasn't caught up to it and they will eventually. And coaching is such a powerful skill that 
pretty much anybody can learn if they were willing to be patient about it. And that is what's going to happen. I think coaching is becoming more and more visible as a capability, as almost a skill set that is required for certain individuals, eventually for the entire world. Because if you can make, and that's our attempt here at Evercoach and at all the different things that I do, is can I make coaching mainstream? Because if you learn just some fundamental skills of coaching, you'll find you're a better partner to your loved one. Your relationship will actually last longer. You'll have more capability to actually understand the perspective of your partner. You'll be a significantly better parent. You'll be a significantly better friend. You can be a significantly better kid to your parents. You will be significantly better as a contributor of society because you're not just acting from impulse. You're acting from consciousness, awareness. Your conscious mind is playing a role and you understand what role your subconscious mind is playing in your everyday behavior. And the more awareness you have to the moment, the better is a chance that you'll live that moment more fully. As society, we have evolved from not needing the basic needs, right? We are not going, all right, how can I get food, shelter? You know, my basic needs are met. Most of the world, like the world that is affluent, mm-hmm. like America's or Middle East or the Western yeah. world. Not only Western world. And, and also, Middle, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. now it's not the Western world yeah. anymore. There's lots of other countries that have gained affluence enough mm-hmm. where they're like, okay, now what? I can get the hundredth car at this point, or I can trade my car again and get a nicer car, right? I can get the nicer phone. It doesn't really, like people are not going, I can't afford it because there's enough money to go around. We can talk about recession. We can talk about all that stuff. The economy is not slowing down. There may be a little fear mongering. Yeah, there's a little bit of slowdown. There's a little bit of uh, challenging times because Mm -hmm. some companies will not last because they are thinking about it wrongly and not positively and then not adapting to the change that is happening. It's not necessarily recession, it's change, mm-hmm. right? You have to reorient yourself to to find how it works and what works now and what doesn't work and be willing to adapt to that scenario is what really is going to make the difference. And coaching is that. Coaching is your ability to change. Coaching is your ability to interpret of what may be happening. Coaching is your ability, if you're coaching yourself, I mean, is your ability to be able to say, okay, this is what's happening. Here's my awareness to it. Here's what I can do about it, right? And when you're coaching somebody else, what you're really doing is you are helping them reflect on their awareness. That's really what you're doing as a skill. You're not doing something else. And once we are aware, we are all so smart and so intelligent. We don't need much beyond that to be able to go, oh, shit, that's what's happening. Oh, I know what I need to do. I love that you brought in the difference between therapy and coaching. As you know, I'm a licensed therapist. But after I finished my therapy training in 2010, and then I went into a year-long coaching training program, I will say this, coaching changed my life. Because in therapy, and I was in therapy for 16 years, from the age of 12, I started therapy until 28 when I got married. And then I became a coach. I went in a year-long coach's training. My mind was blown that I actually had control over my own life. That was the biggest difference for me between therapy and coaching because I was in therapy since I was a kid. And so I talked about literally the same thing for 16 years. It was always family. It was always, you know, boys or school or, you know, just like just stuff. And as I got older, drama, whatever. And then when I was about to get married and and I was in this coach's training program, I remember one of the coaches saying, like, just talking to me. And I was like, wait a minute he's talking to me like I actually have power in my life. And that was the first time anyone spoke to me in a way like I had some power in my life. I didn't realize I actually can create my own life. And my past does not have to dictate my present or my future, right? Like I get to create. So, I mean, yeah, I feel like when I first started the coaching industry, it was 
I almost felt like it was pure. I, I know that sounds like, uh-oh, like, Maybe that's a weird word to use, but it was pure. I, and now as the industry has, you know, evolved over the past few years, it's gotten a little muddled, you know? <laughs> so I think it's beautiful the work that y'all are doing at Evercoach to kind of keep coaching what it is, which is a skill that anyone can master to transform their life and help transform the lives of others. Absolutely. And I think a good, effective therapist mm-hmm. is a coach as well. 100%. And they lean mm-hmm. into it. They are not limiting themselves to the definition of therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's why therapy gets a bad, that, which is why you were in therapy for 12 years. That doesn't 16, even 16, my friend. 16. Sorry, 16 years. <laughs> Being in therapy for 16 years shows how ineffective it is. He's right. If you really He's think right. about it. <laughs> yeah. right? It is supposed to be really, really ineffective mm-hmm. that for 16 years you had to do that thing and you were still kind of going, oh, that's a repeating pattern again. One more time, one more week. The only person that won in that relationship was a therapist. Was the, she, I mean, yeah. she, every single week for 16 years. And the thing is, it, it actually, and I, I may get canceled for saying this, but actually being in therapy for that long kind of keeps you in a narcissistic loop. Right. Because you're constantly just talking about you and what everyone else is doing to you. And you are the victim. I don't think all therapy sessions have to be that way. When I go to my therapist, it's very much like this is what happened. What do I need to change? And how am I looking at this? Let's keep it moving. Like I'm very much solution focused what's happening. But that's not the case for everybody. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like good therapists would move you forward. A therapist that just wants to get rich would keep telling you, you should talk about your past. Yeah, And that's what most people do. Because at some point, we all forget. I mean, not all, but a lot of us forget that we didn't do this for money. Like we did it because we love doing something. I love people and I I, want to see people happy. And also when you see the amount of changes that you can make in your own life, naturally you're like, I want to help somebody else so they don't have to suffer or struggle in life, you know? So um, we all started with that, with that really pure intention. I know you read a lot. I know you reference a lot of books here on the podcast. What book are you currently reading and what insights can you share? Currently, I just finished a book called, um, I want to say if I've got the name right, The Love Prescription. The Gottman Institute. The Gottman yeah, Institute. Institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's it's a they. It's not a new book. I think it's like a two, three year old book. Mm-hmm. And why I was taking that book is I actually just finished reading Us, and uh, which is by Terence Real. Mm-hmm. And like I'm saying, one of my works is around relationships. So I'm I read Us, then I read another book called Good Inside, which is about uh, parenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was reading this book called The Love Prescription, I think, and I remember the name right. I just finished it literally like last week. And again, it, it was through the journey that I was. Then that's why I was saying a lot of therapy if you really look at what they're talking about as coaching is because in the all three of those books it's not really therapy that they're talking about like maybe a little bit they talk a little bit about therapy but their action steps are all coaching action steps those are things that we tell our clients those are things that I tell my clients when we are talking about relationships like it is not a therapeutic approach it is a coaching approach it's not approach that we would go, oh you know what only therapists can tell people to sit down and talk to your wife or your partner for 10 minutes no, that's literally step one. It's yeah. like talk yeah. to your partner for 10 minutes that or listen to your partner for 10 minutes. I'm like, that's coaching 101. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, yes. it's not even advanced. Yeah. Like you learn it in the first day of coaching or something. Yeah. Like first month, if not the first day. So like, that's not therapy. That's no. actually action oriented. That's actually great that a therapist is also open to using coaching models. Yes. And that's why I'm loving the new therapy books because they're nothing to do with therapy. I actually feel really lucky that I had professional training as a social worker. And then I became a coach. So I remember thinking to myself when I first started my business, oh, I'm going to bring the best of both worlds. I'll help people with their past to help them understand their present and then create their future. But then I realized how exhausting it is to just keep, because we can keep dissecting the past. I mean, anytime a client comes to me and they're like, but I want to know why this happened. I go, do you really need to know why? 
Or can you just tell yourself, I don't like the way this feels. I'm going to change it. I mean, easier said than done. But I I think a lot of times we can get sucked into the past and dissecting the past. I know I've I've definitely been a victim of that. I mean, I've definitely done that myself. Therapy comes from, from what I recall, therapy comes from, I think, Jungian philosophy. Yes. I think, right? Mm -hmm. So so what happened, I think there was a point where all these philosophers were hanging out together Mm -hmm. and they had their different philosophies and some of them got really popular, like the Jungian philosophy, which talks about... And Freud also, yeah. And Freud. And both of those guys got really, really popular Mm -hmm. because for whatever reason. And that's where therapy comes from. Mm -hmm. But there was another gentleman and I, I, I don't recall his name right now, but his philosophy was there's nothing you can do about your past. So there is no point talking about your past. There's no point understanding your past. The point is to understand that whatever was in your past right now can be changed if you own your present. That's very freeing. Because even if, let's say, 16 years of your life or 20 years or 30 years of your life, something was the behavior, Mm -hmm. if you own this today and say, I own that this is my behavior, I'm going to change it. If you keep doing it, living moment to moment, being mm-hmm. present to it, being present to it, in a few years, that 16-year thing, a 30-year thing is not going to be there. It doesn't it's have simply, to be your reality. It does not. not yeah. Because it is not. Because present is the only thing that matters. Present is the only moment that is happening in the past and in the future at the same time. Right? Because whatever we just talked about already happened in the past and is already yeah. happening in the future. Yeah. And so this is the only moment where we can own any conversation with people or in our mind. Right. So if if there's something that bothers us that is about our past, you can just have a different conversation right now. Say, is this a thought helping me or hurting me? If it's helping me, great. If it's hurting me, fuck that. I don't need it. Yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and work with a thought that actually is helpful in that moment. And you can start changing everything going forward from there. So you don't have to hold on so much into the past. There might be a few things that are so traumatic in somebody's life that that needs to be addressed. And needs to be resolved. There needs to be programmed differently because there's no way they will come out of a particular state in that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, no. You could, most of the, 95% of the world, maybe 90% of the world does not need therapy. They need coaching. I feel a little resistance when I hear you say that, but there's also a part of me that's like, he's right. Because when I think about some of the things that I've talked about consistently in therapy and, and some of the things that my clients come to me, it's like, it's literally the same thing over and over again. And I remember I asked my client the other day, I said, hey, Let's just play for a second. And he said, okay. I go, what would be available to you if this was no longer the reoccurring story that we talked about in therapy? Just flat out said that. I just I just said, and I definitely prefaced it with like, listen, I'm on your side. I'm not like, this is no shamey, no judgment. Like, just like, I just want you to envision a world, envision a life where this is no longer the story. And he was like, I never thought about that. I'm like, yeah, yeah. just imagine if like you didn't keep talking and it was no longer a thing. And so- He's been seeing a lot of progress, just realizing like, oh, I literally do not have to keep repeating the same narrative because it's just what I'm used to. Yeah. You know, I know you grew up in India in a home with like 23 people, right? Is that Mm -hmm. what would young Ajit, who grew up with so many people around him and who just learned how to go through life and just kind of like you have such a grounded presence about you. I tell you that all the time. But what would young Ajit be most surprised about your life today? Oh, everything would be surprising. There was no way. Yeah, there was no way in any version of my life at that age or in that house, I imagined the life that I live today. There was no version of it. Wow. So I'll tell you, and and I don't think I've told this many times, but as a child, I always dreamed to be a teacher. But not like the teacher, the kind of teacher I am. Yeah. More like a school teacher. I didn't know that. I loved, so we had, and I don't know what boards you had, we had those chalkboards. Yeah in our classroom. So, you know, the white chalk yeah. and black boards or green boards. 
And I, that was my favorite thing to do, to write on the chalkboard. Like that was the <laughs> favorite thing. I felt so good every time I had to do that. So I always wanted to you be a teacher. You need to get a chalkboard right here. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At some point, to figure out how that fits into yeah. the narrative. Yeah. Maybe that that some side of the background yeah. would just be a chalkboard. Yeah. Just to like commemorate that. I don't even know if they make it anymore. No, they 100% uh, do. Yes. They do? Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll just do that just for yeah. fun of it. And my kids can use it. Welcome um, to class with, with, yeah. with the teacher Ajit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I used to love doing that. And I would do that at like if a friend would tell me, oh, you know, can you show me this thing? Mm-hmm. Right. And I was okay at studies. Mm-hmm. It wasn't super brilliant. wasn't it either. Right. So then I would like, I would go into super teaching. I'm like, let me show you. Right, I mean, and I would mm-hmm. actually show it to my friends. I wasn't one of those guys who were like, "Ah, oh, come on, talk to your dad, mm. mom, or whatever." Like, I would be like, "Yeah, I will show it to you." Like, this is how I would think about. It. This mm-hmm. is how I would do the math. Right, this is how I would think about this physics thing and so forth. So I was always interested in teaching, and at the same point in time, teachers don't really have a career, <laughs> right? I not in America either, not in India either. India I mean, now they have a career in India because study and education is so important in India that you could be a private teacher and you would be very, very well paid. Uh, even a public teacher probably is paid much better than how they used to be paid before. But at that time, like becoming a teacher was like, <laughs> who has that dream, right? <laughs> like you want to be a teacher and yeah. be broke all your life? Yeah. But I really liked teaching. And at the same point of time, I was always told, don't like, you know, the dream should be engineer. A doctor. I was like semi-smart, like among more smarter kids in the house. Still like, you should be an engineer. Like that's what you should aim for. And a computer engineer more specifically because that was the time when, you know, the outsourcing was yeah. starting, just starting in India. So everybody's like, oh, totally do that. You mm-hmm. can speak English and you are not dumb. Yeah. So you could probably become an engineer, right? So, <laughs> You're not dumb. That's, yeah, that's, that's definitely kind of, a qualification. That was the criteria yeah. at that time. <laughs> or at least from Indian context, I wasn't... Because when you have 1.4, whatever the number of billion people yeah. we had at that time or a billion people at that time, there are a lot of smart people. Yeah. So you're always dumb, kind yeah, of. Yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot of people who are like sharp. Because yeah. it's just volume, right? Yeah. So what happened at that time was the, the ambition was to get a safe job. The ambition was get a safe job and maybe by the time you're 40, 50, you'll be able to buy a house and get out of the house that you live in. Mm-hmm. So like I was living with 23 people. That was a house. I had a room because my brother had moved out. So finally, as I was turning like 16 or 17, I had my own room, which until then was shared with my brother. So I finally had a room. So it was like, this is the room. You'll get married in this room. Your children will be born in this room. Wow. And in time, you will make enough money that you will be able to get your own house. Right? And so that was the dream. The dream wasn't anything bigger than that. It was like, if you could do that, amazing. You, you, you crushed it. You yeah. made it. You made you it. You crushed yeah, it. Yeah, like yeah. in 40, 50, you have a house. Yeah, you yeah. crushed it, right? Yeah. And it's not bad, but it was just like, you know, that was the dream mm-hmm. at that time. And I remember still the first house I bought was in India. And it was because I wanted my parents to get out of the house that we were all growing up in because they lived in a room. Now they had two rooms. That was the only difference because I was out and my brother was out of the, out of the country or out of the out of the city. So it was, they had two rooms now, which is great. <laughs> the, the bigger house than what they had before. But the idea really was to, I was like, no, you need to have your own house. And I bought that at, when I was 29 years old. Wow. Unbelievable to me, even till today. I would go, wow. That was, I, I remember telling myself, if I can get out of this house by 40, I won. Wow. I'm not even 40 now and I have like four houses. But yeah, it is like that. So that's why right now, no way I could imagine that. No way. Would he be shocked? Would he be proud? Would it be all of the above? Proud and shocked because I am teaching. So remember, my dream mm-hmm. was always to be a teacher. Yeah. Right? That was the thing that, you know, as kids, people play different games. Mm-hmm. I would play the game. I'm a teacher. 
right? So that was my thing. So I am kind of a teacher in a way, like coach, teacher, educator, trainer, yeah. right? I'm doing the same kind of work, not on chalkboard, but but same kind of work. And I have abundance of pretty much anything that I could imagine. I have two beautiful kids, I have a beautiful wife who's yeah. very supportive. Uh, we get to travel around the world. We have great friends like you. Thank I you. live in a place that I love. Mm -hmm. I could move whenever I feel like. I have an office that I'm building exactly as I would like to build. I have a house that is designed exactly as I would like. It's beautiful. And it all goes back to that very first question that I asked you about what skill are you mastering now? And you said it wasn't so much a skill. It's more of you sharpening and just listening to that intuition, right? So it just feels like a full circle moment in this conversation, like how we ended with the fact that, you know, young Ajit would be shocked and proud. Like you have four homes, you have two kids, you have a beautiful wife, you can do pretty much anything that you want to do. And I will be so bold to say that I would say that it's because you pretty much listen to your intuition, you know, your whole life without even realizing that you were following that calling. And now like we, we have a name for it and we call it, you know, listening to our calling, our intuition. But you knew at a young age you wanted to teach, right? You also knew you wanted to get out of that house when you were, you know, by 40 and, and you were able to do that way before 40, right? And so like, I just want everyone listening to this to hear is like that voice has always been inside of you, right? Like when I was a kid, there's so many videotapes of my father following me around with the camera. And the minute the camera's on me, I'm all like light and happy. And I also went into teaching. I don't know if you know that. I got my master's in education because I wanted to teach. But now I'm in a place where like, I love revisiting that question about the young version of us. What did the young version of us wanted, right? For you, it was teaching and here you are doing it. And I think you're a great example of somebody who's like, it doesn't have to look in the traditional way of like a chalkboard with chalk in a classroom. You're one of the most eager people I know to help people learn, right? Like I can never imagine you being like, oh, sorry, I don't have time for that. I mean, you may say that, but you're eager to teach people because you know that knowledge is power. So I think young Ajit would be very proud. <laughs> okay, so when you're thinking about this past year, so much has gone on this past year. I know, I mean, we've all come out of this pandemic where, I mean, it finally feels like, you know, like they were saying for a while, things are coming back to normal. Things finally feel like back to normal, right? In When you reflect on 2022, what challenge or challenges are you most proud of overcoming this past year? I think I, I remember it was just when, just, we were in LA at that time, we lived in Los Angeles, and it had just been announced that, you know, everything's going to be shut down, right? And it was like this, the city would be shut down, the co-working spaces would be shut down, schools would be shut down, everything was going to be shut down. And there was windows when you can go get food from Whole Foods, you know? And there's only those number of people that can go inside or, you know, stuff like that was happening at the time. And I immediately remember at that time, mine, Nita's, both our gut reaction was, this is going to be hard for a lot of people. Let's see if we can create content that can help people go through this. Working from home. How do you be in a good relationship when both of you are together all the time? And the reason why we were, we had already kind of, our life was kind of like that, right? Because we worked, we had the independence of home. We could, we know how to set up your place. You know, like we've done that. We did that already. We, because we, me and Nita had traveled for a whole year, we knew you could get in each other's hair if you're not mindful of how you are working with each other, not just because you work together, but because you are you know how to regulate with each other when you're stuck in the same room or same hotel room for two days or four days straight because you're at a location, both of you have to do some work or whatever, right? That's what our life was before we settled into saying we'll have a child, right? So, so that whole thing was our immediate gut reaction. Those were like videos that we 
put a camera on, like whatever light we had is like poorly lit or whatever in our room while, you know, during the nap time of Ari, Ari was just like just born, like he was like super young. And literally in the nap time, we would both turn on the camera and we would roll for an hour to record a video. And we pushed like three, four, five videos in that first four or five weeks because we knew people are going to need this. So while most people would go, you know, like immediate panic for everybody, ours was not immediate panic. It was immediate service. I love that. And it's not even like you can go back to YouTube. You'll be like, oh shit, they did put out those videos right at the pandemic time. Like in a week from when, you know, shutdown happened, the first video was released. The second was released. The third was released. I think we did like four or five in total. And it was immediately the first response was that. So it was never in my mind. I said, oh crap, this is going to go bad. Or we were concerned that people who don't have the tools, for them, Mm. it'll go bad. And so let's help as many people we possibly can. And that was our immediate first reaction. I love that. And I think that if, if more people were able to kind of just shift from a oh shit moment to oh service, like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? To, instead of being like, oh shoot, this is happening to wait. I mean, and I also understand it's a privilege to be able to serve, right? When your basic needs are met, you don't have to worry about that stuff and you can do that. So I, I do want to acknowledge that. But I, I also want to highlight just the mindset of you and Nita both that when things were you know, shutting down. It was very hard. I mean, I was I was here in Austin. It, it wasn't as bad here as it was in California. It was yeah, still different. Everything was yeah, off, yeah. I had clients in California and they were not happy. I love that you didn't see it as a challenge. I mean, it could have been. It could have been a, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. But it was true for, not just for us, I think the entire team, yeah. my team, we all talked because it was all virtual, right? It wasn't that we couldn't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. It was, and my team is also very global. So we always use Zoom anyways. Yeah. So it wasn't a new thing for us to go, oh, how do you use Zoom? That was not a question in the team. But immediately, the entire team was like, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be sucky. And mm. for our community, for community outside, so what can we do? So it wasn't just me and Nita saying, oh, we're going to, you know, force our team to do something. The team was from the same place. They were going, what can we do to serve? Wow. Hey, listen, things are going to be difficult. You can't do anything about that, right? That's just nothing things you can do about suck. it. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. it's like Nita's book, right? Yeah. That's like now what? It's like there is going to be sucky moments in your life. There's no way to bypass that. Mm-hmm. Life's going to get hard. There's no way to bypass that. What you can do, irrespective of what's happening outside, is what's happening inside. And if mm-hmm. you can regulate that, if you can manage that, even if things go to hell, you would be a little bit happier when it goes to hell. Right. So or even when you're going through hell, you'd be a little bit happier going through hell instead of also being sad and disappointed and angry and frustrated, which is not helping you in any way. Right. If it's going to be hell, it's going to be hell. Like there's nothing you can do about it. Right. What you can do is change your attitude towards it and at least experience it differently. I always like to say when you cannot control, create. Right. So like when I feel out of control, I the first question I ask myself is, what do I have control over? Like and it could be something as like a shift in my living room. Like when I'm feeling like ungrounded and I'm like or or just very dysregulated, I I look to find something that will give me some sense of like groundedness. It could even be like, okay, I'm going to unload the dishwasher. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. let me just do something. Let me just do something because it's so easy to get stick and swim in that and then completely feel chaotic. So I loved how you, Nita, the entire team took it upon yourselves to actually be of service to during that time. Was your year in this past year anything like you expected it to be? Because I know you, I mean, you all moved here. Well, I, I met up with you guys almost a year and a half ago. You've been here yeah. for two years. Two years, yeah. Was this past year anything like you expected it would be? No, no. This this year was a crazy fun roller coaster ride. 
So what were three of, you know, your personal highlights from 2022? I would say the first big highlight was this year. This year alone, I think we would have graduated about, by the time the year ends, almost about 4,000 different coaches. Yeah, this year alone. 4,000, yeah, four, maybe wow. even 4,500, yeah, 4,000, 4,500 people who would have almost finished their certifications through our different companies. So that would be one super highlight. Mm-hmm. Another super highlight would be we got the studio. We, we bought this place for mine and Nita's expansion that we're working on, on, on being able to produce a lot higher quality product more consistently to be able to be of service a lot more easily than it was until now. So using the abundance that we have to create more acts of service in Mm -hmm. a way. So that I think is the second amazing thing that Mm -hmm. has happened this year. I'm talking mostly career-wise at this point. And thirdly, I think the big expansion was being able to really lean into how I am as a speaker. Um, I think until before the pandemic, if you'd see me on stage, you would see Ajit's trying to be a speaker. Uh, because he's like loading people up with content because he's not sure if he can really land with the content, right? So you do a lot of content because you go, I don't know if I can impress them. I'm going to overwhelm them. So they'll be like, wow, this guy's wow. a genius. So you would walk out of the presentation and go, this, this, this is a genius. There's no right? connection because to it, you. Yeah, but there's yeah. no connection because I was not tuning into what really I'm feeling called to. Like I wasn't tuning into saying... It doesn't matter if it lands or doesn't land. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be truthful. I'm going to be connected to the energy of the room that is there. So we ended up doing a couple of events through the entire year and ended up speaking at a couple of events through the year. And pretty much consistently, you've gotten the feedback that it's one of the best talks or the best events that the person has been to. Uh, So I think that would be the third career-wise thing that was really highlighted. What do you think that shift came from? Because you said before, you know, you might put up a lot of slides. I mean, I, I think we've all been guilty of this. I'm like, I got to put as many words on the slides. Don't look at me. <laughs> just look at the information. Well, and, and I'm the same way as you. Even when I, I just did a keynote uh, like two months ago, it, I just used photos. Mm-hmm. Photos from my childhood. And I used photos to share the story. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was so simple. And I was like, I don't need to overcompensate. I am enough. Right. It was really a worthiness conversation and a enoughness conversation. Like I am enough and my slides support me. I don't support my slides. Do you get what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So it's like I am the magic. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what was that shift from you because you've been speaking on stages for a while. But what happened that you decided like, you know what, I'm going to I'm not going to do that anymore. I really want to connect with my audience. Like what happened? I think COVID. Um, yeah. so- <laughs> COVID, <laughs> COVID kicked yeah. off. It made us all have like these like epiphanies about life. Yeah, yeah. because when you are not connected to yeah. people for in that setting for for a hot minute, suddenly you realize that you're doing things because you wanted to go to the next speaking gig. You were not doing things because you were trying to be a better speaker. You're just like, all right, oh, I need to go to the next one and I need to present something or so on and so forth. Basically, those narratives of not feeling enough and so saying, oh, I don't have enough things to really talk about. or I'm not so confident in what I'm talking about. So I'll just load up with a bunch of data. Right. So I can present a shit ton of data. People will be impressed because it's a shit ton of data. Right. So anybody gets impressed by that. And then it's easy to tell a story. You're you're supporting the slides. The slide might as well present itself. Yeah. Right. So during the COVID times, because a lot happened on the virtual world and we started producing a lot more content because I was like, that's the only way now I can talk to my audience mm-hmm. is, to, is to create more stuff. But online, it taught me and it also I, I call it practice in your comfort. Right. It's a lot more comfortable for me to sit in front of a camera versus 
to try and talk in front of 100 people because I can mess this up 2,000 times and then just delete all the recording. It's the magic right? of editing and yeah, just delete it. Yeah. yeah, or delete it or yeah. edit it or do whatever, yeah. right? You can fumble, mumble, you can do whatever you want to do, right? And you can't do that in an audience, in front of an audience. But because I had that about, about a year and a half, almost two years of just talking to a camera, I realized what really lands because I was practicing in my comfort. Right? It's comfortable, right? I was like, I, I can mess this up. It's fine. I just have to do another, it's a 10 minute waste. It's not somebody else's time waste. Right. I'm not being judged. I'm not being, you know, if anybody's judging me, it's me. That's it. Yeah. So I can keep doing it. Right. So what it got me to do is it really got me to keep doing what I really wanted to do, which was to present valuable insight in a, in a concise way, which is a great talk. Mm -hmm. It's a valuable insight done in a, over a short period of time that may be worth years of experience, mm -hmm. right? Which mm -hmm. is why a great speaker is often very experienced in life. Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be old, but they're experienced in life. They've lived a life, right? Mm -hmm. So that really got me to really show up and really present and really not present and all of that for a good year and a half too. So by the time I was back in the world, I didn't have any filter anymore. I didn't think about will this land or not mm -hmm. because I knew it will because I had practiced so much in my comfort, which I think is an important lesson to be taken away for if you want to get over, let's say, fear of public speaking mm -hmm. or fe any fear really is, yes, it's important for you to at one point do things, whatever that is scary. But before you do that, why don't you take two steps back and just rehearse in your comfort? Be in your comfort zone. Yes. Don't be uncomfortable until you're ready to be uncomfortable. I love that. And I think more people should take advantage of just doing a run through, right? Like I tell this to people when they have a keynote, I go, listen, until you hit the stage, you have time to practice. Like don't underestimate the power of standing in front of the mirror and, and full on performance, like give the talk, like you would like give it to a hundred people. Like we have the, and so you were able to do that. You were able yeah. to do that in front of the camera. And so do you notice now when you get on stage, you feel a lot more comfortable? Yeah, I'm super comfortable. Yeah. I know exactly where I'm going. Now it's, it's more that I, I'm more conscious mm -hmm. of what are the topics I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. That's really all I think about anymore. I don't have to think about the talk so much as much as I have to think about what is the big point I want to drive home? What's most important to the audience at this point or the stage that I'm talking to them at, right? Because, and it's not for social, it's not for anything else. It's literally for, I would check in with what the audience is at. Right. If I'm speaking at somebody else's event, I would go in before, at least a day before, so I can really lean into what is the conversation that's happening. Mm -hmm. So I go, oh, okay, that's where these people are at. And now I'm speaking to that. So the presentation itself, I may not even rehearse as much. I may right. rehearse two times, pretty much, not not many times, because I'm also reusing a lot of the material. It's mm -hmm. not new material. It's the same story, like literally at this event, that the one I just finished and I came literally from yesterday. There's, there was a friend of mine who was in the audience that was like, I just heard you tell that story probably five times at this point on stage. Mm -hmm. This was the best time and this really landed. Wow. Right? And that's five times on stage. Think about how many times I might have told that story on video or somewhere else, right? And that's sometimes that's all it is. It's like sometimes you eventually get to a point where you're like it really lands because it really lands for the person that is in the room at that time that really needs to mm -hmm. listen to that story in that way. I love, you know, how you said to practice in your comfort because then when it's time for you to actually get on stage, you're not thinking about wait, what do I look like? What do I sound like? Oh, am I going to be okay? You're like, you're so clear on the audience. What are the topics for the audience? And that's what happens when you practice enough times and you're consistent off camera. When you're consistent off stage, you're doing it when no one's watching you and you have those reps, right? You have that much time under your belt. And then you can really focus on 
what does this audience really need to hear? And that's probably why that person said that to you about your story, even oh. though they've heard it five times. Yeah. So what were three three of your biggest learnings while running your life and your marriage and your kids? Mm. I think the biggest realization I had sometime early this year, so there was a time in my and Anita's marriage that we were really having a difficult time. And we blamed it on, oh, we have two young children. You know, our son now decided he needs to sleep between us because our daughter and him need to share a room because we want to not have every kid have a room when they're like three years old. Yeah. So we're like, no, you're going to, you and your sister's going to be in the same room. Uh, daughter is really young. She just turned one. So, you know, we were in that grind a little bit where all the principles that one must follow in a relationship were not really being able to be followed. And we were coming up with stories about each other. Mostly, I think it was me coming up with stories about how our relationship is not working out, right? Mm. And it's all a story that we tell. And so at one point, it's like, you know, I teach this stuff. Mm -hmm. And one day, it was just a realization that struck me. I was like, if I keep telling myself the story, it is not going to work out. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I started to go, okay, I don't know how to stop telling myself the story. What I'm going to do is I'm going to dedicate the next several months in just hiring therapists, hiring a coach, mm -hmm. hiring whoever I have to, reading books, do everything that I can that can support the idea of you can change your story, right? Mm. In context of a relationship, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So that's also why there's so many relationship books that I've read in probably the last five months or so. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was because I was like, okay, if I tell myself the story a hundred times more, I am going to be the reason why this relationship will not work, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the idiot who called it, right? So I started looking for a different story. And so I started reading books. And some of the books were outstanding that I got. And again, like I said, it was stuff that I knew because they were all coaching stuff. It was all that stuff that we learn and do day in, day out. But as I read those books, I was like, I got clearer and clearer around, oh, how I'm telling that narrative. I love this uh, one one analogy that uh, analogy or way of coaching that uh, this person Terence Real does in his book Us, and I might butcher the exact term that he says, but it's basically he talks about how we create a version of our partner that's like their worst version. Oh my god! Yeah, like we just yeah. villainize them. We villainize, just villainize them. them. Yeah, and then we say that's who they are, Jeez. and then what we do is we say that's who they are all the time. Yeah. Right? Because then when you're in your head, that's what you're doing. You're basically saying that person, you know, they always, they always <laughs> leave the dirty dishes. Guilty. They never, <laughs> never cook yeah. for me. You ne know? Always, they, never. Those I are am like... watching the kids all the time. Oh, you know, all the shit that, that mm -hmm. we can tell yourself. Yeah. Because you have a taken a version of them that may not have even shown in the exact way as you demonize it. There was a small element that may have happened because let's say they were having a hard day and they said, can you do this for once? And you said, oh, they always tell me to do mm -hmm. things. Like, this is always me who's doing things. It's not true. Mm -hmm. It was once that they might have said it. You have made it a story. You have demonized them. You've created this avatar in your head that you now persistently tell yourself is who they are. And guess what happens if you're thinking that that's who they are? You're right. You are right You're gonna because be right. you find every evidence yeah. for it. You go, oh yeah, absolutely. This is always the case, clearly, right? Mm -hmm. And so I found that that's what I was doing. I, I was just demonizing my partner. And the moment I started to go, oh, okay. And so there's another exercise, another book. did an experiment with Chicago couples. Chicago couples that were married over 10 years. And they had reported, the couples were reporting that they um, are dissatisfied in their relationship. So they, they, they kind of said, okay, you you a hundred some couples, you're both dissatisfied and all of you are dissatisfied in the relationship. Fifty of you we want you to do journaling. Just self-journaling. Very great advice, right? Everybody should journal, right? 
do journaling. Let's call them group A. Group A journals. And group A's journaling is how they are experiencing an event. And then group B was told, you also journal, but you're not writing how you're experiencing the event. You are writing down how you're experiencing the event as if you were watching the event or as if you're watching a movie. Mm -hmm. And because of that, what happened was after 21 days, both of them were tossed to 21 days, both the groups. Group A showed no change in dissatisfaction level. And group B showed no dissatisfaction level at all. So all the dissatisfaction was gone away in 21 days just because they wrote the stories as if they were observing it. Because when you're observing a story, you don't look at one side. Right. You have to look at both sides. Right. And when you are looking at both sides, suddenly you have compassion for the other side. You understand even if somebody has not behaved the way they did, that it is perfectly okay. Yeah. Like it's, it, it happens and it can happen and it's okay if it happens. Right. So, so because of that compassion, suddenly the partner was not demonizing their partner. And so their dissatisfaction level went to zero. They were completely satisfied with their partner. And that's something that I recognize of like, oh, that's what I am doing. I'm just telling how my story, I am so sad. Like I am unhappy or I am not getting what I want. My needs are not being met. My dreams are not being fulfilled. Well, great. That's exactly what's happening then for you. Right. And you're changing nothing. Versus if you just looked at the story from two perspectives and suddenly you're like, oh, you know what? I don't have to think about it this way. It's not so much like, oh, it's all about you. Everyone's out to get you. You start to see both sides and also develop that empathy and compassion for her as well. So what was another learning that you experienced while, you know, uh, becoming a father for the second time? So uh, this is... Especially to a girl, right? To a girl, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially to a girl. I think it was learning, it's a realization that, and it also a reminder in a way, is that no two humans are the same. Even if they come from the same bloodline, even if you've given them the exact same experiences, even if you're treating them exactly the same way, my son and my daughter are completely yeah. different. Like already. <laughs> they like even as a one and a three-year-old yeah. or four-year-old, it's like you could go, oh, Ayla is nothing like Ari <laughs> yeah. was. There was like completely different person. Yeah. And I was like, oh, of course, they're going to live a very different life and they would experience life very differently yeah. just because who they are as people, as yeah. the beings that they have come to this planet for the purpose that they came for this planet for. They're going to live their lives differently, which also reminds me of how everybody is as a human being. It's like, it doesn't matter if you're living in the same world, in the same house, in the same city. We could experience life completely differently just because our beingness is so different. Mm. So that's that's one thing that I've learned is all I can do is do my best. Yeah. As a father, that's all I can do. I can give them my presence. I can give them my support. I can give them, I can be there for them when they need it. I can hold them. I can be the place, their safe place. And at the same point of time, that's all I can do. I cannot create them. I cannot give them ambition. I cannot I cannot really do anything beyond just being there, yeah. really, essentially. So that's a big realization to, to having two children, two really young ones in the house. I'm thinking about uh, Dr. Shafali's book on conscious parenting. And even though I don't have kids, and I've actually never wanted to have kids, it's never been a deep desire of mine. But I, I actually read her book because I was like, oh, this might be healing. Like I read this a, a while ago. And I just, there was so much healing in her book, just her saying like, your job as parents is not to mold your child. Your job is to literally just see them for who they are and not make it about you and help them become more of who they are rather than becoming like a mini version. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Because because you can't. Yeah. You think you can. Yeah. But all you do is you create a discounted version of them. Because now they think they need to impress you and they will continue to yes. not be themselves. Mm-hmm. Because they'll be like, oh, dad's not going to like it or mom's not going to like it. And so they just become a discounted version of themselves. 
because they're just trying to just negotiate with you of what's okay, what's not okay, versus just letting them be. And of course, guiding them. You can't just let them be and not have them, you know, any direction. They're still children. You need to give them direction because they're still learning how to adapt to the world that they were born in. Of course. The 3D version of it. And so just that guidance is all that is needed. And after that, it's them and they will create what they need to create and for whatever their purpose was in life. Yeah. So in this past year, I know you love surrounding yourself with brilliant, amazing people who are all committed to their own evolution and growth and just being, you know, just real human beings, honest human beings. What advice or concepts or ideas were introduced to you this year? Like you're like, wow. And, you know, and, and, and who introduced that to you? You know, like sometimes you just hear something. I had a friend say to me the other day, because I was like, oh, it's going to be hard. Like I was talking to her about something and I was like, it's going to be hard. And she just said to me, she's like, does it have to be hard? Like it was just a mm. simple question, right? It, it, it's not like some big grandiose piece of advice. Mm. It was just like, Vasavi, does it have to be hard? And I was like, no, it doesn't have to be hard. And so I've just been noodling on that every time I notice myself being like, oh, it's going to be hard. It's like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have mm. to be hard. You know, so like that's something for me this past year that I've really held on to. It does not have to be hard, right? So mm. what's the concept for you? I think if I was to pick a concept that I was reminded of or maybe introduced for the first time was where it's sometimes, you know, you say yes to certain things mm-hmm. and then you say yes to those things and then you go, I don't really like it. I know. You know, I, I mean, I said yes, but now I feel like kind of like I want to get out of it. Yeah. And I don't remember who it was really and where the conversation was, but the conversation was something to the tune of where they reminded me of that we are doing this to enjoy life. Right. There's no winning or losing. This is just a concept that we come up with that this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. There's no good or bad ideas. There's no winning, there's no losing. There's no success or failure. It's just you can make up whatever you want and it still works, right? Because life's doing its thing. You think you're making it, but it's not. Life's just doing its thing. And so if you sit with it and kind of go, okay, this is all made up. We're just, you know, doing the best we can or versions the best we can. Then suddenly you don't associate yourself so strongly to, oh shit, I cannot say no to because I've said yes. Suddenly you go, is this one? Is this actually going to be something that I'm going to enjoy doing? Or is this giving me like bad stress? There's good stress, which is yeah. a motivator. Mm-hmm. But there's like stress that is actual stress where you're like, you know, I actually like hate it in the morning when I have to wake up and <laughs> get a text from someone yeah. or an email from someone. Like I really don't enjoy it. It's mm-hmm. not fun. It's not something that feels like, oh, this is making me come alive. And somebody reminded me of that. And, and that got me to say no to a few things that I'd said yes to. Because I'm like, oh, no, I'm not going to do it. It's okay if it means that I lost a couple of, you know, bucks or whatever in it. It sometimes meant that I had to step away from a friendship that I was leaning in before. Because I was like, well, this isn't, it's not fun. It's not the person that I'm trying to, you know, build this relationship with is not actually trying at all. So why am I trying this relationship? Just because I said yes, just because I said I'm going to be there for you. But if the person is not responding, I don't have to be there for them, right? Just because of the kindness of my heart or whatever that torture I want to give myself to. So that's one thing that I realized was reminded of this year again. is like, you know, if just because you said yes at one point doesn't mean it's a yes forever. I think that's a reminder that we need like with every like stage that we're in because I used to be the kind of person that would say yes in the moment because... Uh, a little bit of a people pleaser here. No longer do that. If I say no, it's no. But I would say yes 
And then like literally a few hours of the event, I'd be like, oh, I don't feel well, right? And then I became that person. Mm. And I didn't want to be, be that person. I didn't want to be the person that said yes and then canceled last minute. And I said, I don't want to be the type of person that does that. So what kind of person do I want to be? And then I realized like I want to be the person that gives myself time to decide whether I want to do it or, I mean, I'm pretty damn connected to my intuition. I could tell right away if it's a clear yes or no. Mm -hmm. And so really tapping into that because I've been that person too. I've had that done to me and I've been that person that has said yes because in the moment, like, you know, maybe you were just vibing and you were like, mm -hmm. cool, yeah. And then you're like, wait, I don't want to do that. And then like, how do you actually communicate that with that person? But I'm proud of you that you did because yeah. life is too short to just be resentful. Looking yeah. at your calendar and being like, oh shit, I don't want to do this. Like, yeah. you don't have to. Yeah. You don't have to. We put ourselves in those situations, you 100%, 100%. know? 100%. So, okay. As you're planning and forecasting or, or you know, I, I, I love to say vision casting. I like to like cast my vision for the, for the following year. How do you prepare, you know, you on your own and then you with Nita, how do y'all prepare for a new year? Like goals, vision, planning, especially with your partner and your spouse. Yeah. So me and Nita have a framework for life planning in a way you can say we kind of revisit it every year where we have certain dimensions that we've identified that are important to us and they can change over time, but they usually tend to be our relationship, they tend to be parenting, they tend to be a friendship, they tend to be travel, they tend to be our experiences overall, they tend to be money, they tend to be anything related to career. Usually the six, seven categories that we would pick are important to us for the year. And then we would independently together, but independently write what's important to us in that category. And what are we moving towards and what are we moving away from? Mm -hmm. What are the things that are like, you know, not feeling anymore? It's like, it's like, no, this is not my vibe anymore. I don't want to experience ABC, which may be an experience we had. And what do I want to experience in each of those categories? And then we would have, so we have our independent categories. So we know as individuals what we would desire. And then we would go, okay, take the same categories. And now let's see where do we match and where do we mismatch, right? Because very often what happens is we, of course, have our independent goals, but sometimes together goals don't support the independent goals, mm. right? Or independent goals don't support the together goals, right? So what would happen in that case is we'd go, okay, let's sit down. Let's see, do we have alignment, right? Do, do we have the priority alignment? Do we have within the priority, sub-priority or activities that we want to do? Do we have some alignment on that? And what is the misalignment? So then we can review the misalignment and say, what's the balance that we can come together with? Like, for example... If uh, there's a particular thing that Nita really wants to do and I don't want to do, mm -hmm. then we'll find, okay, what's the balance of the middle path, mm -hmm. right? If there's something that I really want to do and she doesn't want to do, we'll do the same. We'll negotiate, go, okay, what is it that's, is it completely okay to say, okay, fine, you want to do it, I'm happy to do it. It doesn't really bother me, so I'll do it. Or, or it's not like a no for me. It's like, okay, it's not a, like I was looking forward to this, but happy to do it. Or it could be, oh no, this is a hell no for me or this is not going to work. So let's find a middle path. Mm. So that's how we kind of first find intentions or direction of travel. I think the, the, the mistake that I used to make was I was very specific about my goals most of my life. I want to do A, B, and C. And it was very specific. I want to make this much money. I want to travel these many countries. I want to travel these very specific places. And what I realized is the specificity is great to some degree, but it orients us in a way where we don't see the beauty that is possible if you're not being specific because you have no scope for non-specific things to happen. And most beautiful things are actually not planned, at least in my life. is I found that Nita was not planned. My kids were not planned. They happened as a consequence of me 
just leaning into saying, I don't know what I want here. I want to be guided to, right? Or I want to lean into what may show up and be open to it and see what really manifests out of it. So it wasn't planned in, in, in any way. It wasn't on a sheet that said, this year I'll find my partner, but that's how it happened. And so what I find is the most beautiful things happen in the most magical ways when there's space for it to happen. And when there is no space, which happens if you have from very strategic and stringent goals, well, then you will end up doing those strategic stringent things and there's no space for magic, right? Right. So I like to leave space for magic. That's why we start with intentionality. And then we would go into a little bit of specifics because there are certain things you have to plan. Like, well, every year we do like to go to a different place because Austin tends to get really hot. Yes. Kids kind of have a break. Mm-hmm. Kids love traveling with us. We love traveling with them. That way we get to show them the world. We have the abundance to be able to do that. So we go, okay. So we like to do summers in Europe. So those are some specific things that need to be planned. Two kids, if you want to travel with friends, friends need to know this is where you're going or this is what you hope that we all meet at or so forth, which we like to do. Mm -hmm. We like to go to a place and have all our friends come down for a couple of days or a weekend if they have the availability to do so, of course, and just come hang out and just, you know, like have a good time together as one big group of friends. So that's kind of what some specific things will get on deck. Some of our events will get on deck. Some of our big ideas, like for example, Nita's book is coming out in in last week of January. So we know, well, we got to plan a book launch party. We want to make sure that at that time we have not scheduled something other that that's crazy, right? So we can really fully support the book or even if something else is crazy, it's going to be second priority. The first priority is the book, right? So things like that. So there would be some specific things, but most of it is pretty open. And once that happens, once let's say we get the specific things, we plan around those specific things. So for example, it's a specific book launch that's coming, which means, okay, let's schedule our podcasts that are aligned to that, right? Ajit, don't go hit the road in January because Nita's going to be on the road on January, right? So it's kind of like things like that, which are just based off of capacity that a person might have, which is, again, one more consideration, one must take. It's not about how much you can do, but how much you can do effectively, right? I have to say... You talk, you talking about planning and specifics makes me so happy. I literally just had this visual. I'm like, okay, did they get dressed up in like Christmas pajamas with like hot <laughs> cocoa and sit down with like some, you know, dry erase paper and do this? Because like, I wish more couples did this with each other. I wish more people just did this with themselves. Like I do this with myself, right? But I'm already thinking like, I just got little goosebumps because I was visualizing you and Nita doing this. And I'm like, okay, when I'm in a relationship, maybe we're going to wear matching Christmas pajamas. It's going to be a thing, okay? I'm going to make beautiful Mexican, <laughs> Mexican hot chocolate, put a little chili powder. We're going to sit and we're going to plan. And I love that. And I love that like she came with her individual, you come with your individual, and then you guys see where that aligns. And I think that's just beautiful because it, you're showing one does not have to forego themselves, right? It's really about coming together. That's been difficult for me, you know, in, in my life to come together with somebody. So it's just beautiful to hear like the way y'all do it. I'm like, I could do that. Mm-hmm. I could sit with, I mean, I do this with myself. I could sit with someone and have it be fun. And and I it just seems a lot of fun. Because it it's is like, a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, because it's like you're all both really, like you get to hear what your wife really wants to create. She gets to, you know, hear what her husband wants to create. And then, you you know, you have your kids in the mix. And it's like, it just seems like a lot of fun. And I feel like, I think what you said was great because most people get so stuck in the details that they lose out on the magic of it. But the way you're describing it, it actually feels fun, doable, spontaneous, but still achievable, you know? So with all the things that you all have with all your specifics and stuff like that, and both of you, how do you prioritize it though? 
Like, because you have so many different things, right? How do you, is it just based on time frame? Like, how do you prioritize your goals for next year? Like your health, your family, like how do you, because I know a lot of people struggle with that. Like what order do I do what in? I know it may seem like a, you know, a very simple question, but this is something that I asked is like, oh, I get, I have so many ideas. Where do I begin? So how do y'all prioritize that? Firstly, if you think in grand scheme of life, you don't really need to prioritize anything. Right. <laughs> because grand scheme of life is so large. The canvas is so big that yeah. all of it can be painted. Like it's not like you have to go, oh, I have to do this. If I do this, I can't do that. That's not actually a case. Yeah. That usually we make up that case because of uh, ideas that are mostly related to careers. Mm-hmm. That's usually when we go, oh, I, I don't have time for this or I can't pursue so many ideas. But if you're talking about general overall life, there's no reason for you to say, if I'm prioritizing my health, I can't prioritize my relationship. Right. You can go to the gym together. You can take a walk together. Like it's not, you can do relationship and you can do the health at the same time, yeah. right? It's not going to take your entire day to prioritize your health. Prioritizing your health simply means sleep, eat well, move. Yeah. That that's drink all some water if you can. The, drink some <laughs> water. Yeah. It's like like four or five principles that you have to do. It's not complicated to do. There's nothing that you have to go, oh, you know, I'm prioritizing my health right now, which means I have no time to talk to you. <laughs> that's not the case. That's really not the case. I right? need to go sip some water. Yeah. You can just stand over there. I'm not ready for you. <laughs> yeah. So health is super easy to prioritize yeah. if you put a system around it. Relationship is really easy to prioritize because all relationship really takes is touch, communication. Mm-hmm. If you do that well you're fine. Yeah. If you give space to your partner to talk to you, give them your presence and they give you their presence, you will not have arguments. You won't have fight. You will need touch. You can be a touch person or not a touch person. An appropriate touch is always something that connects your physical energy to the other person's yeah. physical energy. It's not hard to do if you know what you're doing, if you've thought about it, if you put a five-minute effort to saying, hey, how will I feel connected with my partner? date nights. It's not complicated. It's It's like four or five things. You do them really, really well and the relationship is going to stay solid. Same is for pretty much anything. The challenge really happens is when we are passionately driven to do many things Mm -hmm. at the same time. And that's usually a career oriented, right? Where we go, I want to be a speaker. I want to be an author. I want to be a course creator. I want to be this, this, and this. And then I also want an e-commerce store. Now, when that happens, what happens is because of that insane amount of things that somebody wants to do as a career, they deprioritize everything else. So they say, oh, I can't go to the gym because I'm working on my e-commerce store because during the day I was working on my coaching business, mm-hmm. right? So it's not that you, you're you just thinking that the world revolves around what you do. And it doesn't. And the world does not. And your success also is nothing to do with what you do. It is a part of you that is successful mm-hmm. if your doing is successful in the way you think success is, because that's also very subjective and arbitrary. It's success is usually plotted over time. It's never plotted over the next year, right? Because success is not, will you be successful this year? Success is you created something that lasted a lifetime. Yeah, That's what success really looks like. Mm-hmm. We were early on in our conversation, we were talking about how there were so many people when the coaching industry was booming, they were like, oh, I'm a coach too. I'm a coach too. They all entered the coaching field. They all wanted to tell people how to make money as a coach, right? And you look at them now, they're not there. Like it took them two, three years, cycle it all out because they were not doing it because of something that was important to them. Yep. If something's important to you, you won't have five things. You usually will have two things three things at the maximum because other things you're doing because of some sense of validation. It's a safety mechanism. It is somebody who told you something and now you feel like this is the shit. Mm-hmm. It's none of that trend. is true. Yeah. Trend. It's a trend. It's none of that is actually going to create anything for you. What's going to create something for you is that one, two or three things that are actually important to you. 
once you realize that, you are going to have time for everything because you really do. I've actually seen schedules of coaches, coaches specifically. I look at their schedule and if I talk to them before looking at the schedule, they're like, I'm very busy. I don't have time for this. Like I'm just like working all the time. Mm -hmm. And I go, okay, let's look at your schedule. And then we look at the schedule and then you'll see five hours work. I was like, okay, five hours of work chunk, right? Like what is the work? Right. Right. Oh, I, I prospect. For five hours, you prospect. Nobody can prospect yeah. for five hours. If you prospect for five hours, you have 500 clients. If yeah. every day for five hours yeah. you're prospecting, you Like, have show insane. me the money if you're prospecting yeah. for five hours. It's like, no, that's not. Yeah. Five hours of work is you procrastinating for four hours yeah. to do the work that is actually an hour. Yes. Yeah. You know, I live by my calendar. I don't know if you know this. I love sending calendar invites. I noticed with myself when I was blocking out chunks of time to work on something, I would block out like three hours. And I was like, Vasavi, you don't need three hours to do this. You can knock this out in like 90, 90 minutes, you know, if you just stay in focus. So I think a lot of times we overestimate how much time we're going to need to do something. It's not even overestimating. Yeah. It's it's really weird. We're not even defining what the work is. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, what, what am I doing? Like, it's not, it's not a joke. How many times I've met people who are like, yeah, I'm writing this email, this proposal email. I'm like, all right, let's write the proposal. How long does it take to write a proposal? It takes you 10 minutes to write a proposal mm -hmm. email. But because they're thinking about writing a proposal email for six hours before that, it takes them six hours to write a proposal email because most of the thing that actually needs to be done is somebody has to sit on a keyboard and write. Yes. But you know what people do? I'm thinking about what I should write. Oh, that's going to take you five hours because you're thinking in your head. You're not actually writing it. Yeah. The moment you start writing it, you realize it's a 10-minute job. It's yeah. not even a 10-minute job most of the time. It's like you're correcting grammar after a point because you're like, I've done. The proposal is, if you're clear what the proposal is, you write it down and you're like, send it. That's all it is. But I actually love what you said about, you know, people, they're just not clear on what the actual action is. So if it's like, if you're going to block out prospecting, okay, get really clear. Who are the prospects? Where, you know, where are they? How are you? And then that's it. Be done. Like yeah. I used, when I first started as a coach, I had a coach that taught me, don't get annoyed by traffic. When you're sitting in traffic, use that time to prospect. And that's what I would do. I would prospect when I was in the car. I would have a list of names of, uh, you know, or I'd have a list of potential clients that were interested. And I would talk to all of them while I was on the mm -hmm. phone and en enroll them in my coaching packages. This was 10 years ago. Yeah. So like, it's just about being smart with your time, right? Yeah. And also piggybacking off the prioritization question that I was asking you before, what are three things you would personally love to do more of this year? I'm actually very clear. So last year was Nita's book writing journey. Mm -hmm. Next year is I'm going to work on my book. So my okay. book proposal and then start writing it if you're able to position it well enough in time. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I definitely want to work on next year is to do that. Secondly, is we want to scale our coaching certifications. We've done phenomenally well this year. Uh, we'd like to be able to certify eight to 10,000 people every single year in our wow. different methodologies that we've built in partnership with different companies and people and individuals and so forth. Yeah. So like to really scale that and, mm -hmm. and take it to the next level. So coaching becomes more and more mainstream. One of the things that we've done is we don't only train coaches with the perspective of go build a coaching business. Mm -hmm. We're now training leaders into coaching skills. Mm -hmm. We are training people into skill of coaching of not relying on some guru needs to come save me. Yeah, You can save yourself. Mm -hmm. Giving individuals that skill and that ability to go save themselves. right? And so it's very important for us for more people to experience this. So that's our second thing that we were going to be focused on is to really scale that, to be able to educate more people on this scale. I really love what I do because it is a creative expression, everything that I do. And if I don't, like I said, I just get guided to 
at this point. I'm just going, oh, what's the next expression that's coming out of me? Oh, it's it's something I've not done ever before, retreats. It's like I've never done retreats. I do seminars and events and experiential mm-hmm. events. But retreats is very private, very intimate. It's only 20 people. It's very lot of access to me, which kind of is like a challenge for me. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Right. So I'm always in a creative expression in many different ways. For example, like right now, not today, but on Friday, like a couple of days from now, I'm trying to go, oh, can I make vlog style videos where I am shooting myself? Mm. Right. So I've booked some time for it. I'm studying how people create it. Because I'm like, oh, that's a different form of storytelling that I've never done, mm-hmm. right? Or I've done, but not really. Mm-hmm. So I'm always in a creative expression. There's no time that I'm not. My work is the way I present it to the world, you can say more so. So it's yeah. not, this is what I need for business. It's more what I want to do. Can I integrate in the business so I can see if it works? Yeah, all the so things that yeah. you're saying are yeah. creative because even a retreat is an experience. Yeah. It's just another experience, just like you had the workshop or, you know, for the Accelerate students. It's just another experience. You get to bring more of you and your beingness. I love that. Yeah. What's your intention for 2023? I know a lot of people like to use a word or a phrase. I remember two years ago mm-hmm. for me, it was focus because I was feeling very scattered. I'm like, okay, this is my word for 20. It was 2021. I want focus. This is my intention. And I did. I was very focused on the things that brought me joy and happiness and got me tapped into my creative expression. Do you have a word or a phrase or like a sentence that's that just encapsulates your 2023? No, I and I've never been able to do that yes. again because I I feel like life is so expensive I can't limit myself to a word or a phrase. Yeah. What I do do is I identify what's going to be my priority mm. and more intentional priority of okay these are the areas I'm working on. I also don't like to set a goal per se, mm-hmm. right? Not something that's so specific that I'm tied to it and it'll make me feel happy or sad. I'm happy with if I'm moving in the direction that I agreed and I said that I'm going to move in direction-wise, mm-hmm. right? So one of my primaries that has been for the past year and will be for the next two years at least is that I want to become really, really good at optimizing my own health, mm. to be working on it, to understanding my body even better, understanding how it does things, what it can do, cannot do, what I need to work on, what is it that more I need to understand. So the journey started when Nyla was born mm-hmm. and I had recognized that the first 37 years of my life, I didn't really care about my body so much. Mm -hmm. I was very focused on my career, my relationship and everything else, but I never really cared on how I was health-wise. So I made a decision around one or two months around Isla's birth that that I'm going to give myself next 37 months, because it was 37 years, Mm -hmm. to have my fittest body or the best body yet. Mm -hmm. Right. So that comes at around and now I've changed it this year because it sounds a little bit better to mm-hmm. say fittest by 40. Yeah, uh, I love so that. So that's where I am now is fittest by 40. And it's not comparative to anything. It's not comparative to somebody else's right. idea of fitness. It's just my own version, my version that I want to figure out as to what that fittest by 40 looks like for me. And to pursue that as the thing that I'm focused on for the next two years in context of uh, my well-being, my personal well-being. That's, that's one thing that mm-hmm. I'm focused on among many other things. I love that you said that you don't compare to anybody else. It's just, it's you with you, right? It's just, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to say you against you because you're not battling yourself. Although in a way, you know, we do have to battle some of the voices and resistance in our head. I'm reminded of Matthew McConaughey's Oscar acceptance speech. He said he wanted to thank three people. He said he wanted to thank God. 
He wanted to thank his mother. And then he was talking about like what he's always chased his whole life. And he said, I'm always just chasing me 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm okay with the fact that I'm never going to get there because once I get there, I'm going to be chasing the next 10 years. So I love that. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what, you know, you just sharing that about your own journey with your health. Like you're not trying to be like everyone else. You'll know when you feel that way, right? Because you know what it feels like to not feel that way. So I love that journey for you. And as someone who just, you know, who turned 40 in May, that was a huge wake up call for me. I had like a lot of stuff going on and I'm like, okay, this is it. This is, there's no turning back, boss. You're, you're, you just turned 40. Come on, you got to take care of yourself. So I love that you're prioritizing your health. Yeah. Because I think there are so many coaches, especially, you know, they get so wrapped up and there's a lot of just kind of urgency around being successful, right? And it's like, Mm -hmm. you are literally useless if your body isn't working. Period. Like, how much can you possibly do, you know? So one last question for Mm -hmm. you. I know we've talked about books that you enjoy reading, but are there any movies or songs that you've listened to this year that have just kind of touched your heart? Oh, yeah. There's uh, there's a few movies that I think were absolutely phenomenal. Uh, first one was Top Gun Maverick. I, I haven't seen was, it yet. It's such a brilliantly okay. done movie. Like the message is so good. Okay. Or I mean, I think it is good. I have no idea if it is for everyone or not. I mean, it's also just very well made. The yeah. storytelling is just super on point. I, I This year was the year when I became also a little bit more focused and intentional about how our environments are created. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times our environments are reactive. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you get an office somewhere and whatever is the smell of the office becomes your s- smell of the office, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever is the latest music that's coming on radio becomes your music. Or if you're like an artist, whatever is the new thing that they publish becomes your music. And I realized that's not really a very intentional way of creating an environment that puts you into a state Mm -hmm. that allows you to be what you really want to be day after day, every day, right? And I'm not talking only about career, about how you want to be as a person, Mm -hmm. right? Or what you want to represent as a person to your family, to your kids, to your friends, to yourself, Mm -hmm. to to anything that is around us, to your students or, or however that might be. And that got me to recognize there are certain songs that I like to listen to every day. Mm -hmm. There are five specific songs that is in my playlist that is literally called Ajit's Top Playlist or something like that, which is basically if I'm starting my day, Mm -hmm. it takes about three songs from my house to come here. So it would start at whatever song I feel like. And that was the first song. You got to tell us the songs. Yeah, I'm going to tell you the songs. But basically there are five (laughs) songs in that playlist. The first song is a song by Nina Simone, Mm -hmm. uh, which is called Feeling Good. Oh, yes. So good. So that's the first song. And that's also my song that I listen to before I do a coaching session. Because it's a song about presence to me. That's how it sounds like. Uh, Then there's a song by Hardaway called Life. Mm -hmm. And I specifically like it because it celebrates that life's going to be even more amazing. Mm -hmm. Right? The third song is by Queen called Don't Stop Me Now. Yeah. And that I think is just again a celebration of having a good time. And, you know, that kind of thing. I Just celebrating the person who it is sung for, which is yourself in a way. Another song is called Underdog by Alicia Keys. Oh, beautiful. Uh, it's a wonderful song. It talks about and celebrates underdogs. And I've always been an underdog. I've never been like, oh, you know, the person who's going to win is Ajit. Nobody's ever said that. Yeah. Even when I started in coaching, nobody said that. I was like, oh, this guy, this guy is really going to win this game. Nobody. I've always been an underdog. I love that song. I feel a lot of us have been treated like mm-hmm. underdogs or have 
or think that we are underdogs. It's a great celebration of that. And the last song is by Sia called Unstoppable. Oh, I love Unstoppable. So good. So those are the five songs in that playlist. I love that. I mean, we all need access to your playlist. So we can... Yeah. We <laughs> I mean, can you can just put it on your Spotify can, list now. <laughs> we, can be, we can be like, yeah. I, just, I love listening to Boss by James Brown. Um, it's funky. I was listening to it last night while I was getting ready. Uh, sorry, yesterday morning, I was looking at myself in the mirror. I'm like, it just got me into this. It's like this, it just helps you tap into a confidence that uh, only, okay. I feel like only music can Boss. do that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Called, music can do only, so many wonderful just, things. Yeah, it's if you just, just like, let it be. Yeah. yeah I could I could be going through the, like the worst situation in life, but if I have like my sunroof open, some windows, like music blasting, I'm like, you're unstoppable. Yeah. You're unstoppable. Right. Thank you so much for taking the time to Absolutely. answer all these questions. Thank you so much. Oh,